Amen. I invite you to be seated. Morning. Today we have two readings. First reading is Psalm 119, and it's verses 65 to 72. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark. Um, so it's Mark 10. And it's verses 17 to 22. And it's titled, The Rich and the Kingdom of God. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your mother and father, your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I've been uh, needing an excuse to wear this for about seven years. So this is it. Um, does anyone else wear a uniform for their work? No, some of you do. Yeah, yeah. So one thing nice about it is that you don't have to worry about what you have to wear to work, right? And so for six years of my life, I wore this as my uniform for church. So my church before here called Yorkminster Park where I would wear this. And I remember the first week that I went to work, they said, we're going to send you to a robe-fitting place. I'm like, oh, okay. Never been to one of those. And so then they custom-made this robe for me. And uh, it's been... Um, I, I don't mind it. I kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look too bad. But what can you tell me about the kind of culture this church would have? More formal, right? It's more formal, um, a little more traditional. Um, here's a picture of the church I wanted to just show you. 
So it's a Baptist church, by the way. So it's not like an Anglican church or a Catholic church, it's, but it's, it's, our, and it's part of our denomination, so it's a very high church. And yeah, if, if you go into, and you could kind of see a little bit of the sanctuary there, but they have these super high ceilings. And I used to love walking through there during lunchtime. So I walked through there to go grab lunch, and I'd just be awed and inspired just by being in that space, right? It kind of helps you look up and see God's presence in some ways. Yeah, so it's, it's a more traditional church where they care about what the pastor wears. So all the pastors had one of these robes. They have classical music, uh, a really nice pipe organ that's, that's pretty renowned. And, and their choir is, is top-notch. So you go there, and it's a very different kind of culture. I, I remember my first week as well while I'm there, I had to learn something new, and it was called the Gloria. Does anyone know what the Gloria is? It's, it's, it's a song that you sing, right? It goes, goes praise to the Father and to the Son and to the, you know, praise and to the Holy Ghost. Anyway, so I'd be up in the front, and the whole congregation is singing, and I have no idea what's going on, right? So I'm just mouthing it, like, because I never learned this song. And, and yeah, so that, that's kind of the experience I had at that church. In the same way, our church also has a culture. I'm going to take this off now. Those, I don't want to wear it the whole time. Yeah, so uh, we also have a very specific church culture, right? And our culture, we, where we can wear jeans as a pastor if you really wanted to, right? We could wear jeans. Uh, we like coffee. We're not traditional. I say we're a little more progressive and con contemporary. We use cowbells as part of our worship. Um, <laughs> but we also enjoy liturgy, right? We like silence and stillness at times, and, and it's a very good mix. And even if you look at our staff, you would say our staff is very diverse in our gender and ethnicity, and it speaks to something of a, of a culture that we want to have at Spring Garden, and it's something that's more reflective of our current neighborhood. And so every church has a culture, and all of us are part of that culture. We're all part of this culture, and we are all complicit in how the culture is shaped. Here's a diagram of what I mean by that, and it's a helpful way for us to see how this culture is shaped by its leaders, and then is lived out by the congregation, and then it's, it's, it's a circle. So for instance, we at Spring Garden believed in the importance of an intergenerational community, and therefore we value our children and youth as, our, as part of our community. So we share this with you about this importance and have things like intergenerational worship gatherings as a way to enact this value. We teach about the importance of this community through sermons and studies. And because of this, because we believe uh, our children and youth are important, we have safety policies for our children and youth and make sure they are kept safe. And if this culture is embraced by you as the congregation, you will also tell stories and, and, and act in ways that promote this importance of an intergenerational community. You will reteach this value and, and, um, and will re-articulate the policies and further that kind of culture. 
The important point of this diagram is that over time, it is this rhythm of leaders and congregation, the congregation and the leaders that shapes the culture of the church. Meaning that every one of us uh, in the church is part of the kind of culture that is formed, whether it's good or bad. So if we are part of the church, we can't just blame the church for the culture because we're complicit to that culture. Though we are all complicit in the culture making of a church, though, at the same time, we are pulled and driven by that culture. The culture we are immersed in has the power to move us and shape us, so, so it is important for us to be aware of that push and pull. Like, I would have never worn a robe like that before I went to Yorkminster Park. But now, once in a while, I like to put it on. Well, not really, but, you know. <laughs> I've had, actually, I've worn it at a wedding before to lead a ceremony, uh, um, um, a wedding. So, yeah, at times, it's, it's, it's uh, part of me, and I don't mind that. Right? So it becomes part of uh, who you are. So it's very important for us to recognize what kind of culture we're part of and what kind of culture we want to create. A pastor and an author named uh, Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer, who, Beringer, who is, uh, also happens to be his daughter, wrote a book called A Church Called Tov. Uh, the diagram of culture that we just looked at was from this book. And the word tov is a Hebrew word which means good or goodness. So a church called good. Now, what I'm going to talk about next might be triggering for some of you, so I want to give you that warning before we continue. So McKnight and Beringer wrote this book as a response to the abuses that occurred at multiple high-profile churches like Willow Creek Church and Harvest Bible Chapel and addresses how people in power can shape culture positively or in this case negatively to do things that were self-serving and just wrong. In the book, he gives examples of a toxic church culture such as narcissism and power through fear that could lead to such abuses and cover-ups. This isn't to say that bad things only happen in bad churches. The church, as you may have heard uh, this phrase, is a hospital of sinners, not, not a museum of saints. And so even in good churches, bad things can happen. So I believe it's in the response of those bad things, when bad things do happen, that the church can be good. As some of you are aware, in the last few years, we were made aware of a volunteer intern who volunteered with us from the time of 2002 and 2004. He was charged and convicted for sexual exploitation. And when we found out, we made efforts to cooperate with the police and made ourselves available for care and support. We also encouraged and continue to encourage anyone who may have been a victim to report to the police. And we've been diligent in reviewing and enforcing our safety policies and are in the process of having an in-person audit uh, of our children and youth policy uh, so to continue in this area of safety. It is because of this, though it is hard and uncomfortable to talk about, we want to continue to work towards becoming a church of Tov, a church of goodness. We want to be a church and a people who advocate and support those who are victims and are marginalized and want to be people who seek justice and shalom. We want to be a church of goodness that are not only good when things are going well, but we want to pursue goodness even when bad things happen. 
you might be asking the question, why try to be good when there is so much evil? Even just in Anne's prayer, I was thinking, there's so much wrong going in this world. Why try to resist and fight against the toxic culture when I can't make any difference? I mean, I'm just one insignificant small person. Well, there was someone who felt this way, and I thought it would be a great uh, thing to hear from another person besides myself, uh, another person named Sam, about what they would say about this. We shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What do we all belong to, Sam? But there's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. So Frodo has gotten to a point where he's about to kill his own friend. The ring he has been carrying has not only been a burden that he had to carry, but has been eating, eating away at his goodness. Dropping the sword he was about to use to kill his best friend, Frodo admits that he can't do this to him. And this is where Sam explains to Frodo why he can't quit and needs to continue. And that reason was, and still, and that reason, and there's still a reason for why they need to still hold on. And that reason that is that there's something, there's some good in, the, in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. It's a great line and a reminder of why we continue in the journey of pursuing goodness 
because there is still some good in this world. However, unlike this movie, what we believe is that not only is there some good in this world, but that God himself is good and does good. This is why we continue to strive to be a people and a church of goodness, because God is good and wants to do good. The psalmist in Psalm 119.68 writes this, You, Yahweh, is good, and what you do is good. Teach me your ways or decrees. The psalmist touches on a very uh, important point of who God is. God is good, and what he does is good. Psalm 19 is an acrostic poem where each section starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there are 22 sections with eight verses in each. And in each verse starts with the letter of that section of the Hebrew alphabet. So in our section that was read today, the Hebrew letter is teth. Teth is kind of like a T in English. Uh, and it's the word that we get tov from, which means good or goodness. And in the eight verses, the word tov is mentioned six times. And so each of these verses that you see here starts with T or teth. We don't see that in English, but it's there. I looked it up just to make sure. And this is what it says. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, and now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant has smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I may learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious or tov to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. McKnight and Beringer writes that the word tov is mentioned over 700 times in the Bible and that we are to be good and do good because God is good and does good. We see in the story of Genesis that God created and said it was good six times. Like in our psalm today, when Moses wanted to see God's glory, this is what God said. He says, I will make all my goodness or tov pass before you, and I will call you my name, Yahweh. I will call my name, Yahweh, before you. McKnight and Beringer believe that because God's name, Yahweh, was spoken as his goodness passed by, that God's tov is intertwined to his name and to his very nature. As the song we sang today and the Psalm 23, 6 states that not only is God good and does good, he runs after us. He chases after us. Psalm 23, verse 6, surely your goodness or tov and love will follow, pursue, chase me all the days of my life. This is an important truth for us to remember and to embrace as we enter into this conversation of cultivating goodness culture. We aren't just good because there's some hope of goodness in the world. We start with the reality that God is good and God does good. Not only does he do good, God chases and pursues us with his goodness in Jesus Christ. We are made to be good because God is good. And though sin has marred and tainted that image of goodness, God and his love for us comes in the person of Jesus to restore us into his goodness. This is why the gospel is called good news, because the gospel is God pursuing us out of his goodness to make us good and to do good. 
This is why the psalmist can sing that God is good not only when things are going well, but even when he faces challenges and hardships. He can trust in God who is good, who will ultimately lead him and us to quiet still waters. This is, again, why the psalmist can sing that God's laws or ways are more precious or more good than any riches, more good than even thousands of pieces of silver and gold and even perhaps Bitcoin. And and speaking of goods and riches, a rich man hearing about this Jesus and his teachings comes to Jesus and addresses him as a good teacher and asks him a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Calling someone a good teacher was not the norm of the day. You may address someone as a good man, but the term good teacher is not found in the Old Testament or in Judaism and is normally reserved to who God is. So Jesus responds to this man as a good teacher of the law, uh, what a good teacher of the law would say, and says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. This isn't saying that Jesus himself isn't good, but rather to point to what a good teacher of the law would say. And this would have made the rich young man even more impressed with Jesus. Ah, yes, you really are a wise teacher. Even when I address you as a good teacher, you answer very well. You know the Torah or the Bible really well. And then Jesus then goes on to answer the question by saying to the rich man, well, you already know the answer to inheriting eternal life. Keep the commandments. And then he starts listing some of them. What's interesting here is Jesus seems to not remember his commandments. And he starts with six to nine. He says, don't commit murder, adultery, theft, and perjury. And then brings in five, honor your parents. He doesn't mention one to four, which is putting God first, no idols, not taking God's name in vain, and keeping the Sabbath. And he misses out on number 10, which is, you know, don't covet your neighbor's possessions or envy. The rich man doesn't say, oh, you missed some of these commandments, but says confidently, yeah, I've kept all those commandments since I was a little boy. Jesus looks at him and says, it says he loved him and says, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The thing is, even back then, there was a law in how much money you should give away. There were religious laws that were set up so that you wouldn't give away too much of your money so that you would be in poverty. Sure, be charitable and do good, but don't put yourself in a state of poverty by being too charitable, because what good would that do to others? It was to the point that there was this saying about being in poverty. They said, poverty is worse than all the plagues of Egypt. So the law was set up so that you should not give away more than one-fifth of your wealth, because then you would possibly enter into poverty. Yet Jesus, knowing the heart of this rich man, gives up uh, of this rich man and says this to him, give up all your possessions, all your wealth, and come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. At this, the rich man's face fell, and he went away very sad because he had great wealth. This rich man followed the laws that suited him, the ones that were not hard to follow. I won't murder, I won't steal, I'll honor my parents, but having no idols, putting God first, yeah, well, I'll do that by following some of the rules that I could already keep, but not really put God first in my life. 
When I was reflecting on this passage, I thought about this question that Jesus asks the rich man, like, why do you call me good? And I thought, did this man truly believe Jesus to be good? Because if he did, would, would he have not followed the teachings of Jesus? Wouldn't he have left everything behind and followed Jesus if he really believed that giving up his riches would not only be good for him, but would lead to eternal life? To me, this is the real question for us to consider. The premise of our current series is that we are called to cultivate and work towards a church of goodness, not because we are good, but because God is good and made and continues to make us good in His image through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Not only is God, not only is God good when things are good, but that He is good all the time and makes good even out of bad. At the same time, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we truly believe that God is good? I mean, we can sing songs of God's goodness, but do we believe it to be true? Because if the rich man truly believed that Jesus was good, that is, to give up all of his possessions and goods uh, and follow Jesus would actually lead to eternal life, why did he not do so? It's because he believed that following the law led to his riches, in which he put his hope and trust in. Though he wanted eternal life, he didn't want it if it cost him his riches. I think in the same way, it is really easy for us to go around saying and, and singing songs of God's goodness and that his ways are good, than to put that to the test. Do we really believe that if we gave up all of our possessions or whatever else we hold on to dearly, that if we were to offer those things up to Jesus, that goodness would follow? The question we need to ask ourselves and the question that Jesus asks every one of us is, do we truly believe that Jesus is good? Why call me good if you're not going to follow me? This is why Jesus tells his disciples, I think, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Jesus says, if we who are not good all the time can give good things to our children, how much more will God who is good all the time give good things when we ask for good things. Just as at me as a father, when my child will ask for something good, like, can I have some money to take my friends out for lunch? I'm not going to be like, no, you know, don't take your friends out. I don't care, right? I'll do it because I think what he's doing is good. How much more God who is good, and sometimes I'm cheap, so I don't want to do that, but how much, how much generous is our God when we ask for good things, why wouldn't he give that to us? But why does Jesus even tell that story in the first place? Is it because sometimes we, for some reason, see God as this vindictive, judgmental, and stingy God who is just unhappy, always ready to judge us, to take away our fun and make our lives miserable? But he says he is the good shepherd. Why do we not believe him? During this series, we will be looking at seven key characteristics that will help us cultivate a church of goodness. We don't become a Tove church because we are to be good. We become a Tove church by surrendering ourselves and trusting in Jesus, where we can lay down all that we hold dear and trust in the good shepherd who will produce a good fruit in us. Here's a helpful diagram by McKnight and Berenger on the circle of Tove. 
And this is what we're basing our series on. And if you see, it says, nurturing habits of goodness. It isn't passive. Let God change me and, and we'll just sit back and let God do everything. But rather, we're called to resist habits that lead to a toxic culture by nurturing these habits of goodness. So, for instance, nurture empathy. We want to resist a narcissist, narcissist culture. Nurture grace. We want to resist a fear culture and so on and so forth. Do you believe that God is good and does good? Do you believe that God wants to bless you and calls you his beloved? That Jesus wants to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Even in the story of the rich man, did you notice what Mark said about Jesus? Even when the rich man was delusional of his ability to keep his commandments, all the commandments, and Jesus knew that this man would not give up his riches, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus did not condemn this rich man, but looked at him with compassion and love. He loved him while he was still unable to do, to let go of his idols. Jesus loved us while we were still sinners. He loves because God is love. When Frodo was feeling hopeless and downtrodden, Samwise Gamgee says to Frodo, Do you remember those stories of old? The stories of old where God has been faithful, where his goodness has been shown in, in people's lives. In the stories that mattered where there was brokenness, evil, and shadow, and pain. Yet it is through those things that God was able to bring good out of evil. That's what makes God good. It's not that he can just use good stuff to bring goodness. But he can transform and use even the most evil things of the world and bring about salvation like the cross. So let us look and remember the stories of old. Let us hold on to goodness that is all around us, whether in creation or a smile from a stranger, a hug from a loved one. When someone shows you grace and forgiveness, let us be reminded and experience the goodness of God that is all around us. You and I who are here as reminders of God's goodness, as he has pursued us each, pursued each and every one of us, we are here because of his goodness. If you ever feel as though you are not good enough, if you ever feel as though you can't do any good, look to Jesus who sees you with compassion and love, who says, come and follow me because I am the good shepherd. Come and follow me who has been pursuing you with my everlasting love. May you know this love of God, a good God calls, who calls you good and calls you to do good. Let us pray. God, you are a good God, and you have created us in your image to be good. And so when you see us, you do not see us with our own eyes or eyes of, uh, of judgment. You see us with eyes of loving compassion. So help us to embrace that reality, to, to see ourselves not with our own eyes or with eyes of what others uh, see us as or what, what we think of ourselves, but to believe in your goodness and that you call us good, that you've come to pursue us, to chase us, because you love us and you want us to make us good. 
So help us, Lord, even when we can't do good. Help us, Lord, when we don't have faith. Give us faith. Help us when we can't seem to see ourselves as you see us and to trust in your goodness that you are a good God. Thank you. We embrace it. We, we live in your goodness and uh, want to see in others how you've made them good. And may we continue to strive and live as people in a church who, uh, who love in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.